humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thanks be to God. This is the word of God. The word of the Lord. All right. Um, so we are coming to the near the completion of the letter, the epistle of First Peter, and we have one more sermon. Um, Colin will close us out in December, and then we will begin a new series in the new year. I'm not going to tell you what that is because not completely sure yet. We're still working on that. Um, I'll let Colin give you that surprise. But today, we're going to look at this next to last set, section and basically what amounts to uh, Peter expanding on what it looks to lit, looks like for someone to clothe themselves in humility, as he said in verse 5 in the previous section. So as Peter is closing this letter, he gives us two basic frameworks as he is exhorting these scattered Christians who were experiencing persecution and strife in their lives. One, humble yourself before God. And two, be sober-minded, watchful, and resist the devil. So another way that you could say that would be in these times of trials, humble yourself and stay vigilant. Now, this sounds strikingly similar to what James writes in his letter. If you were to turn your Bible probably just a few pages back in James 4, James paraphrases Proverbs 3.34, just like Peter did in verse 5. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And there, the progression in James is about the same as it is in here. Humble yourselves before God, and then be vigilant in your faith. The wording in these different epistles is so similar, even though they were written to different people at different times. From best estimations, the letter of James was written about 20 years prior to 1 Peter. So those who read 1 Peter may have been familiar with James by that point. Um, considering it had been in circulation for about two decades, but I'm not completely sure. Um, a question that comes to my mind, though, is why? Why are they so similar? Or how are they so similar, almost verbatim in this area? And a few reasons that I could think of. One, most importantly, that both letters are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So therefore, God is who wrote them. Since the true author is the same, we would expect similarities as he is the bearer of all truth, seeking to lovingly guide his children. Secondly, we see that Christians were obviously dealing with real problems. And these apostles, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were helping them understand how to live in light of what was happening. These are practical matters for everyday life, and they continue to be applicable for us in modern circumstances. Thirdly, we are forgetful people. 
we need to hear this over and over again so that we can remember and understand God's goodness to us because we tend to forget, especially when we're going through the thick of things. Repetition was good for them just as it's good for us. Fourthly, something that's true of every human being is that we are prideful. In our fallen state, arrogance is at our core. This, is, this was true of them. This is true of us now. We so often value our own opinions and comfort over others because we're self-seeking, and that leads to division amongst people in general and even within the church. We're quick to think too highly of ourselves and put our felt needs and wants above others. Even as Christians, on our best days, we think of serving others less than we think of serving ourselves. This is common to the human experience, so we need as many slices of what they might refer to as humble pie as we can get. And this is the best type of pie for us to eat. Finally, Christians have a real adversary, the devil. He's prowling around looking for someone to devour, as it says here. The devil does not waste his time with unbelievers because they're already blind to the truth. They're following the prince of the power of the air. They're seeking to serve themselves already, and they willingly follow his ways. But we, as Christians, who have been changed by God for his glory and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we do seek to live lives that honor God and bless others. Now, this adversary hates that God would receive praise. So he attacks the church in order to rip them up and cause confusion wherever he can. He seeks to place division between Christians Because if he can distract us from good, then he can pull our gaze away from Christ. We need to be called to humility and encouraged on the path of righteousness. So continuing on, in a sense, from the previous statement that was made to clothe yourselves in humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, Peter reiterates, humble yourself. Humble yourselves, all of you, under the mighty hand of God. Think of yourself properly in relation to your Creator. The goal is to help Christians realize that we are called to humble ourselves, being alert and watchful, so that when Satan strikes, we can resist him. And generally speaking, if Christians humble themselves, if we truly humbled ourselves, then we would see blessing follow, right? If we humble ourselves as subject to the authority of the church, then the church would excel. If, we, if elders humble themselves and serve the flock, a church will function as it's called to, and the congregation will grow in godliness. If we humble ourselves in our own Christian-to-Christian relationship, those relationships will flourish because we'd be looking to meet the needs of others before our own. But ultimately, though, We are first and foremost called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that when he sees fit, he will exalt us. Now, looking at the term, the hand of God, is an interesting word, a couple words study, uh, if you get a chance to do that sometime. It's metaphorical language, or an anthropomorphism, um, used often throughout scripture to show us what is true of God. And it's used in different ways, but it ultimately shows us that that he alone is all-powerful, all-wise, sovereign, and how his actions show that his favor lies upon his children. It's used to show how the Lord gives guidance to his people, such as in Acts 11, 
where it says the hand of the Lord was with those who were preaching in Antioch. It was empowering them, and, and the Lord was fulfilling his purpose by his hand. It's also used to show the strength of God against the enemies of his people. In Psalm 138, which we read earlier, it says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Similarly, it shows how God protects and preserves his people. Think of John 10, where Jesus proclaims that his sheep follow him, and that he gives them eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of his Father's hand. Humans cannot move the hand of God. The bottom line is, when Christians see the phrase, the hand of God, in Scripture, we should take comfort in what being, what's being said, because it points us to his majesty, his otherness, his sovereignty. It also shows us that he is active in this world, and not far removed, but near to us. He alone is sovereign over all things, including his creation, time, space, and earthly rulers. There's nothing that falls outside of his scope of power. And because he is sovereign, and he has created us for his glory, we, as human beings, are called to obey him in humility. Because he clothes the humble with grace. This is a picture of the entirety of the Christian life. One of humble submission and obedience and trust in the Lord. He will provide for us. He protects us and preserves us. He cares for us. He provides salvation, saving us from the punishment we deserve. And at the proper time, we see that he will exalt his people. In the day of the Lord, judgment day, when he returns to consummate his kingdom, all of humankind will be judged perfectly, and his people will be exalted to reign with Christ forever. There's only two standings before God on that day of judgment. Everyone to ever live will be placed in the category of either the humble or the haughty. There is no middle ground. The humble, the redeemed, the lowly, as Psalm 138 put it, who have realized their need for Him, for God, the ones who fear the Lord and have been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, as they have looked outside of themselves to his perfection to save them, or the flip side of that, the haughty, the arrogant, the prideful, the ones who have rejected the grace of God, shown in Jesus and trust in themselves or some other idol, they are not exalted. Only the humble are exalted by God. He regards them. The haughty will be cast away from him. So for the humble, there's hope. Because the suffering from persecution that these Christians were experiencing on this earth was temporary. It was for sure to come to an end. So the call was to endure in humility by the grace of God. The anxiety, the pain, the results of a sin-riddled world cannot last forever because Christ has defeated them. But they lived, and we also live, in the already, but not yet. It's true that these hardships are already defeated, but we do not yet experience the complete release from them. But when Christ returns, or calls us home, we will all experience perfect justice. Where injustice reigned previously, justice will now reign forever. Wrongs will be righted and no corruption or immoral acts will remain hidden. And we can take hope 
in this promise. They took hope in this promise. Then Peter gives a practical way for these first century Christians as well as us to humble ourselves. And that's to cast our anxieties on Christ because he cares for you. Do you ever find yourself anxious about anything? I do. Uh, I think it's safe to say that in a world disfigured by sin, that anxiety is another part of the human experience to some extent. Now, I realize that some struggle with anxiety more than others, but I think everyone, to some extent or another, struggles with it at least a a bit. Um, Anxious thoughts about finances, the future, jobs, the economy, children... Uh, relationships, our family, current world events, politics, the list goes on. We could continue to list out things that potentially make us anxious. Um, All of these can seem to add up and they seem overwhelming at times. But what's the call that Peter calls Christians to do with these anxious thoughts? Cast them upon Christ. By way of illustration and to show you just how much I needed to let this text impact me, let me tell you a quick story from earlier this week. I tend to be pretty easygoing. I don't usually deal with a lot of um, anxiety, or maybe if I do, I just bottle it up, and that's also not good. Um, But I don't usually get bogged down by the thoughts or concerns, but earlier this week, I was having a rough day. And I I had reading assignments due for class that I had to finish. I was working through this text and trying to figure out the sermon as I was thinking about the, I was also thinking about the future. Uh, What comes after the internship? Are we called to go try to plant or revitalize a church? When? Where? How in the world do you even do that? All these thoughts were piling up in my head, and all these questions were running around in my mind. And I was in kind of a funk, kind of grumpy, and Jenny called me on it, which she is good at, and I need at times. Um, So we talked about it, and as we were talking, I was explaining to her that I had all all these things on my plate, all of... The things on my mind and that I was basically anxious without saying that to her. I didn't even realize the irony of the situation until we were talking. I just started laughing because <laughs> I looked at her and I was like, I'm anxious. And it's causing me to be in a bad mood while I'm studying, about one, of the, studying one of the go-to passages about anxiety in Scripture. If you can't see the irony there, I don't. I don't know where you can see it. So this proves that I'm a forgetful person. I needed this. Uh, I was failing to do what Peter had exhorted these first century Christians to do, casting their anxieties on Christ. I was letting my own pride, my own ego, my own desires get in the way of grasping what is the greatest statement in this passage. He cares for you. Christian, he cares for you. He cares about you. He cares about the major details as well as what we might see as the minor details in our lives. He wants what is best for you. And this is why we can take comfort in this passage. This is what this is why Peter wrote these words of comfort to those who have been who had been scattered and were dealing with persecution for their faith so early in the history of the church. This is why it's still applicable even to us. He wants them to remember what is said in Psalm 55, to cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Understanding the reality that one day righteousness will reign perfectly and perfect justice will be the norm 
allows Christians to persevere in the here and now. In the midst of the battle that rages around us or the storm that rages around us. Even when things look bleak, we have hope. Now, to be fair, it doesn't say anywhere in this passage or anywhere else in the Bible that when we do cast our burdens and anxieties on him, that our lives will be perfect. Or that we won't have anything difficult to deal with going forward. There are some who posit this theology, but this is not biblical. And in fact, this whole book of 1 Peter would go against what they teach because it's written to help Christians suffer for the glory of God. So casting your burdens on him doesn't mean that our circumstances will get better necessarily, but rather when we acknowledge that God is God and that we are not, that he alone is sovereign and we trust in his goodness and his steadfast love toward his people, we will respond correctly to different sufferings that we experience in this life. We respond with faith and with hope in the Christ who suffered for us. Then we come to the the second section of this passage, a call to be vigilant. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter calls them to be active in their faith, always watching because their real adversary, Satan, is stalking them. Peter using this language may be a reference to some of the imagery that we get in the Psalms. So Psalm 7, for example, where David says that he takes refuge in God and asks to be saved and delivered from his pursuers, lest like a lion, they tear his soul apart. Or also in Psalm 10, David's enemies are portrayed as lions lurking in ambush in their thickets. Think of it this way. How many of you have ever watched the nature documentaries where they focus on how animals interact with each other on the Serengeti or another sub-Saharan African plain. If you've seen these films or seen these documentaries, you've most likely at some point seen how they focus on the lion, the apex predator, the predator who stands at the top of the food chain without real opposition because of their dominance. When looking at lions, it doesn't look like they have a lot of weaknesses. They are muscle on muscle on muscle. They're cunning, they're strong, they're intelligent, they're ferocious, and they're powerful forces to be reckoned with. When they kill, their kills are fast. They ambush their prey after hiding in the brush, often at times in the dusk or in the dark so they can't be seen. They jump on the back of the animal that they're going after, and they kill them by clamping down on their throat or on their mouth. That unsuspecting animal that was being hunted had no chance. Because it happens so quickly. So the picture that Peter is painting for us here puts the devil in the role of the hunter, the lion, and us in the role of the hunted, the antelope, going about our business, just grazing. If we aren't constantly on watch and remaining vigilant, watching for this predator, we too could be devoured. The devil seeks to sink his teeth into any Christian who lets their guard down or is distracted by the pressure of the day. Now, 
Just a word of caution as we think about what Peter is saying here. I think it's easy to find ourselves at um, on one extreme or the other when it comes to thinking about the devil or thinking about Satan. Some Christians, or some in Christianity, talk and act as though he doesn't exist, and that he has no power. Um, then on, uh, they, others will attribute everything to Satan. Uh, neither of these extremes is helpful, and Peter wants us to learn to, to, learn to live in the middle, to realize um, that there is an adversary. He, he doesn't deny Satan's existence. Clearly, he tells the readers that they have a real adversary who is hunting them. He also doesn't tell them to live timidly or fearfully, being paralyzed by fear of the devil. In fact, there were other Christians around the ancient world who were experiencing the same kind of persecution for their faith, and they could draw encouragement from this, knowing that Jesus cares for them as well. Rather, he wants them to acknowledge the reality of an adversary, but live firm in their faith. Live secure in their faith, remembering that their suffering is temporary. The word usage of a little while, once again, points to the reality that suffering is passing away. Even if it didn't feel like it when they were in the midst of it. Even if it doesn't feel like it when we're in the midst of it. There is an end in sight. He told them previously in chapter 3 that if they suffer for righteousness sake, they will be blessed. Even if that reward is delayed, they will someday receive it. God has called them to eternal glory in Christ. The promise is everlasting glory, everlasting life, with no sin, no suffering, no persecution. None of the bad that they're experiencing at that moment will be part of that future time. In fact, Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish them. And the same is true of Christians now. How do we know that? Think of who's writing this letter. Peter, one of the original apostles who walked with, talked with, and lived with Jesus of Nazareth. The one who the God of all grace has called us to his eternal glory in. The one who was raised from the dead to prove his power over sin and over the adversary. This is the one who Peter is saying will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Peter wrote this letter, and he knew a thing or two about how Christ cares for his people. Did Jesus restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish Peter? Yeah, he did. He restored him after Peter denied knowing him three times in John 18. Christ, uh, after Peter failed miserably, or sorry, Christ restored him three times and told him to feed his sheep in John 21 then. After Peter failed miserably, Jesus entrusted him to a position of prominence of teaching his flock, his people who he cared for so deeply. He confirmed him when Peter had the first, when Peter was the first apostle to confess that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. What did Jesus say to him at that point? Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He strengthened him. When Peter showed himself to be a bit overzealous at times throughout the Gospels, Christ strengthened him so that he would become a strong and fearless leader in the early church. Peter proclaimed the Gospel on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 with boldness in a public square. 
He established him. This man, Peter, who had his flaws, Jesus tells him that he will build his church on him and the gates of hell would never prevail against it. This is a forever promise that Jesus gave to the church through Peter. But none of these were done because of how amazing or awesome Peter was. That's the beauty of biblical characters. We see their shortcomings and their flaws as we read these narratives. These are done based on who Jesus was and what he was doing and what he could continue and what he would continue to do. They're based on the goodness of God, which is found on perfect display in the person and the work of Christ. The goodness of God in restoration after we have suffered, even if you are beat up after persecution, he will clean you up and make you beautiful. The goodness of God in confirming your standing as his child, even though there are times when we slip up and Satan strikes because we let our guard down, he will confirm you. The goodness of God in strengthening you to persevere in the faith he has called you to. Even though you feel weak and burdened and beaten down, he will strengthen you. And the goodness of God to establish you. Even though your faith may have faltered or you struggle with the assurance that you're his, he will establish you, solidify your standing as his child permanently. To be established is to be put in the position forever. Just as Christ has been established as the king, you are established as one of his subjects forever to rule and reign in glory with him forever. These Christians in the first century and we now, thousands of years later, can rejoice in the suffering because God is with us. He has proven his faithfulness. So you can cast all your anxieties on him because at the proper time he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Then it's as if Peter was preaching to himself when he wrote this letter. And his theology just overflows into praise in verse 11. And he proclaims, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Proper theology should always lead to doxology. Proper study and understanding of God should always lead to praise of this great God. And we see his, when we see his beauty, and that's what Peter does right here. He opened the letter with a doxology in chapter 1. Of blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he explodes again here after he encouraged Christians that were confused and disheartened by persecution that they were, that they were encountering on, on account of their faith. Peter's faith is grounded in one who perfectly humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. And then at the proper time, he was highly exalted and God bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We humble ourselves before God and cast our worries on him because he truly cares for us. We submit to the will of God the Father because he has established Jesus Christ as the king. We have an adversary who prowls around like a lion looking to devour us, but he has nothing on the lion of Judah. And the devil cannot snatch us from the strong hand of God. 
that fight is already over. And Christ has won, defeating sin and death. We battle, again, against the world, the flesh, and the devil in this life. But the outcome of that war doesn't hang in the balance. The outcome of that war was decided some 2,000 years ago when the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead. And because of his work, we, as those who were born again to a living hope, can now look forward to the time when we are with him forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to be able to learn more of you and to grow in holiness. As we think about this passage, with a call to humble ourselves and be vigilant, would you help us to do just that? Help us to rely on your work in our lives, humbly submitting to your will and being renewed by your spirit. Help us also to remember that we do have an adversary, the devil, who is seeking to destroy us. That he would love to trip us up, cause division among us, cause us to doubt our salvation or doubt other things that you say are true of us. Build us up in your truth by your spirit that we would be able to resist him. And would you, uh, would you alone get the glory? And we pray all of this in the name of our risen Christ. Amen. Amen.